0: We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode.
1: Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily. Today is Wednesday, November 22nd, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor, Jacob Hall. hello. Hello. Happy early Thanksgiving, everyone. We are not going to have episodes uh, tomorrow and Friday this week because of the Thanksgiving holiday. So uh, just consider this our tiny Thanksgiving present to you. Uh, Okay, Jacob, let's dive into it. Um, Let's get into what we've been reading. I read a book called Leave the World Behind by uh, Ruman Alam. This book came out in 2020. There is a movie adaptation of it coming to Netflix later this year, I believe, uh, directed by Sam Esmail, the guy who did Mr. Robot. And uh, this is a book... Have you you
1: read this book by any chance? No, but I remember... uh... I remember when we covered the making of this movie, the most recent trailer. So it definitely has my interest. There's some pretty big, some pretty big names attached to the film adaptation.
0: Yeah, yeah. A bunch of the cast looks great. Um, I think the movie trailer looks pretty good. So I was curious uh, to read this book. And I am sad to say that I didn't like it. And it's not because the story wasn't good. It was because I didn't like the writing style, which is kind of a rare thing for me. Mostly I'm, I'm pretty open when it comes to writing styles. But this was um, the best way I can describe I can describe it is that the author uh, just kind of hammered home the same points over and over again about what kind of people his characters are. And you kind of get it after, you know, just a few of those descriptions. And it's like the entire book is basically spent um, like telling you over and over and over again, yep this this person has this personality and this is the kind of thing that they think and do all the time and it's like yeah 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 i I get it let's let's move on um it's also
1: is there like a literary intent there like a, a repetition that's supposed to form a motif or is it just kind of or is it you know life?
0: uh I am not um I'm not sure jacob i I'm not going to say that there isn't uh but if there is I am happy to say that I was too dense to pick up on it. (laughs) So uh, it's very possible that there's some sort of, yeah, like advanced uh, thing that I just like did, you know, he was putting down something that I just straight up did not pick up. Um, That's very possible. So I I will just say... How the book, uh, how I reacted to it, and I just did not react very well to the way that it was actually written. I think also this is a book. So that the basic story here is that a white middle-aged couple with a couple of kids um, drives out to Long Island and they get uh, an Airbnb, and they're staying there on vacation for a little while. I think it's supposed to be a week or something. And then an older black couple rings the doorbell and says, "Hey, we actually are the owners of this house, and there's been." some sort of mysterious blackout or like an event uh, in in New York City. And so we are driving out to this house to just sort of like hole up here. Like I know that it's awkward and everything. And the book is basically about like how this white couple deals with this, uh, what they see is this intrusion by this black couple. And there's a lot in there about class and race. And like the white couple is like Do these people really own this house or are they trying to rob us like what's going on so there's a lot there in terms of like stereotypes and there's a lot there to sort of um to to chew on and then the the movie kind of or the the book kind of um gets into this idea of like what is this mysterious event is there really one what's really going on and the characters are kind of like siloed off in this house and they don't really know what's happening in the outside world um, I kind of feel like this This is a book that where the author was so enamored by like the central metaphor and, and metaphors that they were working with that they kind of forgot to care as much about the, the actual story of it. It's like they, they found uh, a really good framework for a story, but didn't really f- uh, craft a, a super satisfying narrative out of it. So that's how I felt about the book. I'm curious to see how the movie deals with this and like how accurate and, and uh, faithful an adaptation it actually is. But um, yeah, uh, sad to say that I, I didn't really love this book, but uh, if you're interested, it's called leave the world behind and the movie is coming to Netflix uh, sometime in the next couple months, I think so. Um, okay. What have you been reading
1: recently, Jacob? I want to do a few quick comic book recommendations. Uh, one of the series has been running for, I think 10 issues now, and there's a uh, two trade paperbacks available in addition to individual issues. Uh, It's Image Comics' uh, Dark Ride, uh, written by Joshua Williamson and drawn by Andre Brisson. And it is something that feels kind of genetically made in the lab to appeal to my tastes. It's about a horror theme park built in the middle of the Las Vegas desert by a character who can best be described as the Walt Disney of horror. Uh, (laughs) As we have, as we learn ourselves before other characters do, he essentially sold his soul uh, to a demon to grant him eternal success and his horror theme park is populated by actual monsters that are really out to do harm to the guests and the main characters are his uh, uh frankly kind of shitty son and shitty daughter who are, you know, in, in, in true succession style, uh just sort of uh, broken people who don't know how to be humans you know? <laughs> I leave behind a trail of bad relationships in their wake As they all start to deal with the fact that they're learning that their father's theme park uh, and horror company is based on actual monsters and there's actual threat here uh, this is a really spooky comic it actually is, is legitimately scary and violent but also really funny and i was impressed by uh not only the horror elements and the character work but how much it really is interested in, in the theme park of it all and a guy who's a theme park fan i really enjoyed dark ride and i feel like um i feel like in, in a world where uh, comics like Invincible are becoming an Amazon animated series. I think that Dark Ride feels like it could be a really good animated horror show if somebody got the tone just right. Okay, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, what else have you been reading? I would recommend, uh, and I very rarely do this these days. Uh, I usually try to wait until you know a, a comic series has been running for at least a few issues to give a recommendation. And even I am getting picky about picking up individual issues. I'm more of a, a trade waiter these days. Uh, but I want to talk about Beneath the Trees Where Nobody Sees, which is written and drawn by Patrick uh, Horvath. Uh this is a comic series about this very adorable little town, kind of like Animal Crossing, if you play the Nintendo game, populated by you know humanoid animals, you know, like uh, you know, ducks and bears and dogs, and they all, you know, walk upright and wear clothes, but they're it's drawn in this very lush, colorful, you know, beautiful children's book style. The main character is the owner of a hardware store. She's a bear and she's lived in a small town for years. And the, the first part of the, of the first issue is her, you know, introducing the town. We get to see some of her social her social circle, her employees, uh they're preparing for the big town parade. And the big reveal uh about halfway through the first issue is that this bear is a serial killer and she drives in the nearby city, abducts random people, um, dismembers them in the woods, buries a body, goes home to her delightful small town life. And it's all done in this, like I said, incredibly beautiful, adorable, like, genuinely pastoral uh, art style. And the issue, first issue ends with a giant reveal about what, what the actual plot of the series is going to be. And i have it's been a, a good long time since I read a first issue that grabbed me quite like Beneath the Trees where Nobody Sees did. And I'm really excited, especially since uh, Patrick uh, Horvath is in, is new. Like, this is uh, his first comic, from what I can tell. He, I think it looks like he's been, like, bouncing around the edges of the film, TV, and comic world for some time. But this is, just, like, uh, a, one of the coolest debuts I've seen in a long time. I'm very excited to see where this goes. Wow. So, are even the um, the
0: murders depicted in that same art style? Or does the, the style shift when violence
1: breaks out? No, so it's... As gnarly as the violence is, it's still drawn in the same style as all the you know cute animal stuff. <laughs> gotcha. gotcha. Interesting. Okay, cool. So that's called Beneath the Trees Where Nobody Sees. Uh, what else have you been reading? I want to recommend two books that I think should be read back-to-back. And I actually was reading a much longer book that I'll discuss in a second. And I needed a break, about 400 pages into it. So I went ahead and burnt through uh, The Late Shift and The War for Late Night by Bill Carter. Uh, these are two books uh, written... I think about 16 years apart, about various shakeups in the NBC late night cycle. The Late Shift, published in 1993, uh, is about the initial war for the Tonight Show fought by David Letterman and Jay Leno, both of whom won when Johnny Carson retired, and both of whom butted heads, and both of whom felt they had a right to host it. And the war for late night is about what happened when Jay Leno was told by Embassy that he was leaving the show to make way for Colin O'Brien, and what happened during that whole, you know, year-long uh cluster cuss. And uh, both books, despite being, you know, written all these years apart, you know, and, and by the same author, really, I feel like, are complement each other in ways that really means you should try to read them together. You should buy both books and you should read them back to back as one long epic thing. Because this is, if you want your succession fix, if you want your Mad Men fix, if you want your soap opera Game of Thrones mix, if you just want an uh, insight into how late night TV was operating in both these periods. Uh, these are invaluable. Uh Bill Carter was was and remains a seasoned uh, uh, TV journalist for the New York Times. And he has so much access from everybody involved. And the characters here, I mean, David Letterman is introduced in in The Late Shift. You you, you don't think about him as being a factor in the Leno versus Conan O'Brien story. But if you've read Late Shift and The War for Late Night and the Letterman stuff there, like feels like a proper sequel. Um, It's it's almost Shakespearean, Ben, that all these talented, hardworking men... Um, have just sights on the Tonight Show and destroy their lives over it. It is truly <laughs> wild. Um, I thought I knew I knew the basics of these stories, but I didn't know the details. And it gets really into the muck of it. The, uh, you know what's going on in the NBC boardrooms. Who dislikes who? Who is uh, who's liked and who's not? Uh, who's talented and who's not? I mean, one of the big recurring things is that uh, NBC doesn't quite get Letterman or O'Brien. Um, uh, but the, but they, And they seem to realize that, oh, they're clearly more talented than Jay Leno, but Jay Leno brings in the ratings. So what's more important, having a good show or a successful show? Hmm. And uh, I, I left both these books with a much more profound understanding of late night television, but also of uh, Conan O'Brien, Jay Leno and David Letterman. And... What a cast of character Like you, you, you couldn't write these people and get away with it. I mean, these <laughs> are bizarre, bizarre histories, uh, especially Leno and Letterman. Conan O'Brien seems r- relatively normal compared to Leno and Letterman, who are just some of the more outrageous, complex, and prickly characters I've ever read in a nonfiction book. So, if you are at all interested in TV production or just TV scandal, or really interesting like warts and all behind the scenes stories. Uh The Late Shift and The War for Late Night are both <laughs> really, really good fast
0: reads. That sounds awesome. It also sounds like this might be the perfect time to read those books because it's like that whole era of TV is kind of over. So it, it almost seems like, you know, you're looking back into recent history on something that that basically like just happened. Like the the book is kind of closed on late night television. There's nowhere that that entire industry is nowhere near what it was even five years ago or something at this point. So um, yeah, that's one of the things
1: the book gets into without spoiling anything is that all these people, Lena Letterman and O'Brien who are all, um, you know, even though we, we think in our head that O'Brien's significantly younger, he really, he's really not, he's, 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 he's a baby boomer like, like those other two and all of them grew up watching Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. And a, and a huge recurring motif across both books is all these people wanting Tonight Show and wanting to have Johnny Carson's desk And all the sensible, all the sensible people in their lives, their agents, their managers, their colleagues, telling them, you are not getting Johnny Carson's show. You're getting Jay Leno's show. You're getting a second show. You are not getting Johnny Carson's desk. You are destroying your career over this. Why does it mean so much to you? And they still go after it. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Man. Okay. So that's the late shift and the
0: war for late night. And then the big one, Jacob, this is one that you've been talking about sort of behind the scenes in the, in our
1: slash film Slack for a while. Yeah, I decided to dive into Napoleon, A Life by Andrew Roberts. This is a recent and well-regarded biography of Napoleon Bonaparte, the uh, soldier turned you know emperor of France uh, in the early uh, uh, 1800s. And after reading American Prometheus, the giant book about J. Robert Oppenheimer to prepare for that film, I felt I should do my best to be on top of any Napoleon questions that may, may arise from my team. <laughs> um, so I... His book is massive it's about a thousand pages if you include all, all the uh indexes and notes uh, 800 or so pages if you include just the book itself and as he notes in his introduction uh roberts writes that this is the first napoleon biography written with full access to the napoleon archives uh in paris uh which means literally tens and tens of thousands of ex- of surviving napoleon letters that he personally wrote so it gives a proper insight into who he was as a person and his day-to-day life and what he actually did as opposed to you know uh the the broad picture that gets painted of him mm-hmm. and um should i go ahead and just combine this with my thoughts on really scott's napoleon I <laughs> yeah yeah please do okay so i did end up seeing Rudy scott's napoleon at a press screening and boy did i not like it and i have a lot of issues with it as a film i think it feels really cut to pieces it feels very kingdom of heaven-esque uh in that there's probably a much better director's cut. The, the, the theatrical cut hitting theaters feels very rushed, very surface level. Uh, it feels like there's major pieces of character development missing, relationship building missing. It is, feels like an assembly of scenes. And I think a longer version will play a lot better provided that, you know, there's, it's a situation where Scott has the footage he needs to make a improvement like he did with uh, Kingdom of Heaven, you know, goodness back in 2005 mm-hmm. and, uh, apple tv plus will be streaming the four-hour director's cut and i'm going to check it out but i will say this much this movie bunged me out so hard that i had 70 millimeter tickets to see it one, one of the very few markets for 70 millimeter tickets and i canceled them because i couldn't bear to sit through it again um not even for 70 millimeter wow and i'm a 70 millimeter fanatic and har- heartbreaking how much i dislike this movie and if i had seen this movie before i read this book would I have liked it more? Maybe I, I I do think that the problems with the film exist beyond having read a lot of Napoleon and learned a lot of Napoleon, uh. Because I do think the movie feels like an, an an editorial mess. It genuinely feels like it's it's strung together in a way that does not make sense and does not allow you to be brought into this world or understand its characters. But my big issue, Ben, this is where I get pedantic, and this is where you can start to you know listen to my opinion with a grain of salt, people at home, is that. I think that the portrait of Napoleon as played by Joaquin Phoenix and as directed by Ridley Scott is so much less interesting than the real guy to the point where I love my fellow critics and colleagues. I've talked about how Napoleon's a very funny movie. You know, he plays as, as this bumbling fool, a Michael Scott character, I heard someone call him and, uh just this sort of uh, absolute imbecile who sort of fails upward to become emperor of france mm-hmm. and and, and it, it describes it as commentary on you know authoritarian authoritarian figures and whatnot and the thing is people like that absolutely exist we saw in we saw in Donald Trump you see in Benito Mussolini there are absolute true imbeciles who are also who achieved incredible levels of power uh through abusive methods uh but Napoleon Bonaparte is. I think so much more prickly and complex than that. The The actual guy as chronicled by Andrew Roberts is this very self-aware, very smart, very cunning person who rotates between monstrous and admirable like at a moment's notice. Like it, I there are pages where I'm like, oh, this is actually, he was hundred years ahead of his time thinking about this. And then the next page be like, oh, oh goodness. Oh no. Um, and it's this portrait of a man who was, Always working, uh, and it was a genuine genius. There's so many times in this book where he's literally at war, hundreds of miles from home, in a tent in the snow, um, preparing for the next day's battle, where he's going to send hundred thousand men up against hundred thousand men. And yet he's r- right he's dictating letters home about micromanaging laws, saying what should go in the Louvre this week, making sure science academies are getting funding, making sure like you know pardoning people for for for, for like. Transgressions that he think are he thinks are silly. Hmm. It's the idea that this guy was um an authori- an authoritarian, yes, but an authoritarian who truly had this giant picture in his head of what France could look like. And it's contradictory and sometimes evil and sometimes progressive, but it's always fascinating. And it's this picture of a guy who was so smart and so brilliant. That he took over an entire damn country. Now, he wasn't even from Napoleon's course again. And he's, a, he's an immigrant and he essentially took over another country and became his beloved emperor and became this figure of scorn from all of his enemies. And that, which makes his failures uh, in, the, in the final stretch of his career so fascinating because he fails so incredibly in, 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 in the final stretches of his life. Whereas in Ridley Scott's film, his stories are depicted as, you know, oh, of course he failed. He was an idiot. Uh, mm. Whereas the real story is, how did he fail? He was a genius. And that's, I don't mind really Scott taking historical license. I don't mind him changing how the battles are fought or simplifying strategy because you kind of have to, because Napoleon's battlefield strategy was really complex. You can't, it's really hard to depict in a movie. So I don't care that he dramatizes uh, the battles differently, which was the first initial wave of people responding poorly to this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't care about that. I don't, it makes it more exciting. I just kind of care that, one of the most fascinating men I've ever read about who I admire and hate in equal measure just becomes a buffoon in a movie. And I think that's such a, the the least interesting way to tell the story. I
0: wonder if the version, if the theatrical cut is essentially the buffoon cut. Like, do you think that there's enough um, enough stuff that in that four hour version that could uh, color in the lines a little bit more on that character and, and sort of like shade in those ambiguities that you were hoping was there? Or do you feel like um, Joaquin Phoenix gives a consistent performance all the way across the two hour and whatever version of the movie that you saw. And you're kind of doubting that, that uh, he he is going to bring anything else to a longer version of it.
1: That's the question. I don't know because so much of this movie is Joaquin Phoenix being a goofball. And it's, it's kind of, it's it's an amusing, it's an amusing performance in a nutshell even though I think it kind of runs out of steam. It's so one dimensional. Uh, the joke I've made several times, but never on air is that, uh, the British propaganda about Napoleon, uh, and even the French propaganda after he uh, fell from power was that he was this cuckold, this buffoon, this idiot, um, this, uh, extravagant, uh, rich guy who didn't know what he was doing. And that's inaccurate. I mean, history has proven that's an inaccurate portrait. Um, but that's not what King Things plays them. That's how Ridley Scott portrays him here. And maybe uh, in a sly way, the, Ridley Scott, you know, the consummate Englishman, is making the most English possible version of the Napoleon story by adapting <laughs> the propaganda as opposed to the uh, actual nuance. Which, if that was intentional, I'd be kind of like slow clapping all of this. <laughs> but yeah. I don't think so
0: okay well that's fascinating so the book is called napoleon a life by andrew roberts and uh, napoleon the movie i think is going to be out it's probably out right now i think as as you're listening to this on wednesday so um cool all right well let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk about what else we've been watching all right jacob i want to get into what i've been watching uh i want to mention four things so i saw rustin the um Biopic uh, directed by George C. Wolfe, the guy who did Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. This is on Netflix. And uh, this is the movie that stars Coleman Domingo as Bayard Rustin, a civil rights activist who was essentially almost single-handedly put together uh, the 1963 March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. And so... I honestly had never heard of this character before, this this uh, historical figure before. And I think I saw, I want to say it was like vulture.com. They, their review of Rustin was basically something along the lines of, the headline of the review was something along the lines of like, Rustin is a great history lesson, but it's kind of a bad movie. And that's exactly how I feel about this. I, I feel like it was informative, but as a movie, it just kind of falls flat. There's just not enough um, uh, drama or like life to the movie to really recommend watching it as a piece of entertainment or commentary or, um, anything like that. I think it's, it's almost like reading a Wikipedia page or something. And, but Coleman Domingo does great with what he's given. I just think this, uh, this whole project is just kind of, it's a little lifeless for me. So, um, that's unfortunate. Have you seen
1: Rustin yet? I haven't, but it's interesting that, uh, we're talking about two history-based films in a row here. Uh, Napoleon. I feel missed the mark by not embracing history, and it sounds like Rustin embraced uh, missed Mr mark by not embracing cinema.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, g- a good way of putting it. It's like the history seems. I, I don't know. I haven't read again. I've never. I'd never heard of Bayard Rustin. Um. So and I've not read anything about like his real life. So this they may have taken a bunch of liberties and stuff in terms of uh, adapting his life story. Um. Or not really life story. It's not a cradle to the grave thing. It's more like you know a, a very um concentrated period in his life uh so uh, yeah th- it's possible that they you know uh took some liberties and, and kind of did their own thing with it but um but yeah I think the idea of not embracing cinema is a good way to put uh how I mean George C. Wolf. my understanding is that he was a, like a playwright and maybe directed a bunch of theater and stuff and then um I, I believe he's directed several films but it, it just does not feel like uh the movies are his first love and it it doesn't feel like he has like the same grasp on um on yeah like moving a camera as he would you know directing on a stage or something so uh that's rustin it's on netflix right now if you want to check it out again a great coleman domingo performance and he's always really fun to watch but um yeah i was a little disappointed in that one overall uh i also had a chance to watch all of us strangers have you seen this one yet
1: no, but I've been hearing, honestly, kind of mixed things.
0: Yeah, so I, I uh, the review at SlashFilm.com is uh, fairly negative, um, but I loved this movie. This might be one of my favorite movies of the year. It's it's really, really gorgeous. So Andrew Haig directed this. This film stars Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal and uh, Jamie Bell and Claire Foy. And the trailer gives away the premise of the movie. The movie itself kind of slow plays it a little bit and doesn't really spell it out um, right in the first few minutes. So I guess I'll just go ahead and say what the premise is. So if you don't want to know anything at all about this movie, fast forward a few minutes, but uh, basically Andrew Scott plays a screenwriter who is living in London and he meets this mysterious neighbor played by Paul Mescal's character. And they start to form a relationship. There seems to be nobody else in their entire high rise tower building. Uh, So that's kind of an interesting thing. There's a lot of like stark cinematography and, Um, It's a really beautiful looking movie. And then uh, Andrew Scott's character is a screenwriter who's struggling to write about his parents. So he goes back to his uh, childhood home, which is in a suburb of London. And when he gets there, he encounters his parents who look exactly the way that they did on the day that they died, which was like 30 years before that. So Claire Foy and Jamie Bell play his parents. And so it's like this really interesting sort of otherworldly experience where they're not ghosts and, but you know, they seem to like have corporal form or whatever. Like he can, he can touch and interact with them. And it's almost as if he just steps into a steps into the past, steps into this almost alternate universe kind of thing where they know who he is. They know that he is their son. They don't really know what happened to them, but they just, kind of all embrace this bizarre circumstance in which they find themselves where they're a- they're able to interact. And, um, Andrew Scott's character is able to talk to his parents about th- aspects of his life that he was not able to when he was a kid, when they died. And it's this very, very powerful, like I found it to be like a really profound exploration of like the relationship you have with your parents and the, the openness or, or closeness that, that you have and how time can heal that and how that can be ripped away with you know through the whims of fate and like all this these big heady ideas um i just thought were really really beautifully explored in this movie so uh and the performances like across the board are terrific andrew scott paul mescal jamie bell and claire foy are both like are all really um just absolutely extraordinary so uh i really really like this movie a lot i did see uh, a fairly you know a fair amount of mixed stuff from the film uh, mixed reactions to it but um but yeah I, i'll just say like it worked very very well on me so if it works Uh, as well on me as it did. um, You know, I I hope that it works as well uh, for our listeners as it it did on on me. So
1: I'll I'll just leave it at that. But if you're also, without going into spoilers, um, the premise, are we talking about like a a science fiction film or more of a magical realism fantasy type approach to this?
0: Yeah, definitely magical realism fantasy. Like the rules are never really clearly laid out. It's much more dreamlike, but not in an annoying way. Like sometimes I get bothered by, I, I like rules. I like it when movies like come out and say, like, okay, this is how this works or whatever. Um, and sometimes I feel like just relying on dream logic can feel like a crutch or can feel like um, you know, they didn't want to bother with the rules. So they're just like they hand wave it, you know, and and they're just like, oh yeah, it's dream logic. It doesn't matter. Don't think too hard about it. This movie, I did not get that sense from it. I got the sense of like, wow, this is just a really, really gorgeous uh, you know, it, it felt more um more in line with the form uh, if that makes sense in terms of instead of just like a, um, a, cr- a purely creative decision, it felt like everything sort of blended together um, and, and it creates this sort of swoony otherworldly kind of vibe. Um, and then that, that contrasts really well with like the, the real stuff that's going on in the, um, in the high rise, like more metallic uh, kind of high rise. Yeah. Like uh cityscape type of stuff that's happening in London with the, um, the Andrew Scott and Paul Mescal characters. So uh, that is All of Us Strangers. I think it officially comes out in theaters like in January of next year, but maybe it'll be out in, in limited release uh, soon and, and sort of like expanding wider in the in the weeks to come. So keep an eye out for that one. I, I really, really enjoyed that. Um, let's see what else. Oh, I saw uh, Bye Bye Barry, which is a documentary that is on... Amazon Prime, I believe, as of today. And Jacob, I think you'll like this one. I know you're not like a huge sports guy, but I know that you got into like the F1 uh, show on Netflix for a while. And you were a big fan of The Last Dance, the Michael well, Jordan I'm not a sports
1: guy, but I'm a sports
0: doc guy. So I'm yeah, yeah. on board. Yeah, so I think this is right up your alley. And this is about Barry Sanders, who's this incredible football player who walked away sort of like arguably at the peak of his powers. He just walked away from the sport and retired. And there was this huge mystery about like why he decided to walk away. And uh, this movie tries to answer that question. And I feel like it it does it in a pretty satisfying way, quasi satisfying in terms of like really getting into his mentality. But what this thing does really, really well is the same thing that um, The Last Dance did really well, which is cross-cut current interviews getting into the headspace of the main subject with just absolutely astounding uh, archival footage of this athlete performing at the absolute peak of you know physical, like, human perfection, basically. Like, doing all these unbelievable things that the body should never be able to do. So um, I loved watching this. I thought it was, like a really really cool uh throwback type of thing and it, it feels like the spiritual successor to the last dance for me so uh, that is called bye bye barry and if you like sports stuff at all i would definitely recommend checking and this out where is it streaming uh, i believe it's on amazon prime video uh, as of today i'm pretty sure today is the day that it, it officially premieres so uh okay and then i saw priscilla did you see sofia
1: coppola's priscilla yet i'm gonna be a stripper to you ben i'm kind of off the Sophia Coppola train in a big way and I have Ooh, <laughs> interesting okay that's fascinating
0: so I'm trying to remember what her, her last movie was the um the one for Apple TV plus that was called on the rocks uh I remember thinking that was okay um I'm trying to go backwards in her filmography uh, the beguiled the remake of the beguiled I never saw that I also didn't see the bling ring um so that's like 10 years of Sophia coppola stuff right there so i can understand did you not like any of those movies because if so then
1: i i totally get why <laughs> you you wouldn't be interested in checking out her latest yep. thing bling ring is where i kind of fell off ah, okay. he has a pretty big following. i don't begrudge anybody for liking it i just think that she doesn't make movies that excite me and i'm glad there's an audience for them but i guess i'm just not part of that audience and that's that's fine yeah i really loved virgin suicides and i thought lost in translation was
0: really great um And so Priscilla, I think might be like one of the best things that she's ever done. I I really enjoyed Priscilla. Um, I think especially in contrast, I mean, it's so hard not to talk about it in contrast with what Baz Luhrmann did with Elvis last year. Um, But they're like two totally, completely different movies. Uh, And this one I found to be much, much more entertaining. And I liked Elvis. I liked Baz Luhrmann's, you know, bombastic over the top, like just pull out all the stops, go hard. Uh, kind of approach. This is a much more quiet, much more um, character focused uh, approach to the story, which is pretty disturbing when you think about it, because uh, I kind of knew like a little bit about this going in, but I I am not an Elvis historian. I don't know, not even really an Elvis fan, to be honest with you. So I just kind of know him like through pop culture osmosis, and I didn't really know much at all about Priscilla Presley. Uh, but she was essentially groomed to be his lover when she was 14 years old. And like they met each other on a, an army base in Germany and he just kind of like uh, took over her life basically. And um, the movie does a really good job of like not moralizing about that because the early parts of the movie, when she's a kid and still in school and like furtively sneaking around and, and having this relationship with Elvis, um, and then has to like go back to class and just sit there and listen to teachers drone on about whatever <laughs> the stuff they're trying to teach or like listen to, uh, you know, the, whatever drama is happening in, in, uh, with her schoolmates around her. But she has this like gigantic secret. I thought all of that was like really, really well done in this movie. And then the whole back half of the film or really the back two thirds of the film is her, uh, moving to Graceland and getting married to Elvis and what chronicling their relationship as it sort of uh, rises and then very quickly falls apart. So um, I just thought this was like pure Sophia Coppola in the best way. And uh, Kaylee Spaney is unbelievable as Priscilla. She is like, I, I did not know that this actress had this in her. Uh, she, this is the best thing that she's ever done by far. And then Jacob Elordi plays Elvis. And I thought he did a great job as well. So there's just a lot to recommend um, about this movie. So we, uh we
1: Elordi between this and Salter, and The guy's kind of- Yeah. Like, I, I, I'm going to paraphrase somebody's social media observation. I can't remember who said this, uh, but it was along the lines of, I'm sorry, I doubted you. I get it now. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. I, I feel that way. I have not seen um, any of- What's the HBO show uh, that um, Zendaya is in? Euphoria. I've not seen Euphoria. And I know that's where he sort of like came to prominence, I think. Um, So, but like he's popped up in a few things here and there where I'm like, oh, okay, Jacob Lordy. All right. Uh, So Jacob, I would say like, maybe even, even if you're like off the Sophia Coppola train, I would recommend trying to check this out before the year is over just to see if this because i feel like this might be the project that gets you back on board because it i I just thought was really really well done
1: yeah at the very least be able to compare it to uh last year's elvis which i enjoyed quite a bit um at the very least letting me have that ammunition for 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 conversation should be worthwhile yeah yeah definitely
0: okay so uh you already talked about napoleon tell me what else you've been watching recently
1: i want to briefly run over everything that's in theaters for thanksgiving week uh napoleon you can skip Uh, I talked about saltburn before on this podcast uh you should definitely see Saltburn. it's really quite good uh I, and also last week i touched on hunger games battle of songbird and snakes which we you know d- dedicated an entire episode to the hunger games franchise so i saw it again i think it may be the best movie prequel ever made i mean i know there's not a lot of company there i mean the all mm-hmm. prequels you know i know they have their fans i'm not one of them the hobbit is no no thank you um (laughs) no one likes those movies (laughs) so but i think in terms of a a prequel genuinely enriching and original and feeling like it needs to be there and part of the conversation from here on out uh bala song burning snakes is the first movie to properly and fully do that it's like it's really terrific awesome Uh, brings me to the last major release of thanksgiving week uh could open on friday but uh, i think people may be rightfully waiting to see it uh over the holidays uh eli roth's thanksgiving his new slasher film his adaptation of his uh fake trailer from grindhouse um and here's why i like this movie ben i think it may be my favorite eli roth movie uh and i i've liked some and strongly disliked other eli roth films uh is that it's not a nostalgic object i mean his grindhouse trailer you know very famously captures the, the feel of a low-budget 80s schlock mm-hmm. film And he does not do that. I think that very wisely in an era of 80s nostalgia overload, Thanksgiving is just a straight-up slasher film. It takes place in 2023. There are smartphones. Instagram and live streaming is a major major part of it. But the fundamentals are all still old school. It plays out like a very traditional slasher movie. uh, Just brought seamlessly into modern times it's there's not a single winking moment of nostalgia not a single moment where it's trying to feel like a fetish object it is just a very darkly funny very nasty slasher film made for 2023 uh and that's kind of refreshing it's, it's like, I, I didn't realize how much i wanted this until the credits rolled and i realized oh so many modern slasher films are going for that old school look they're deliberately aping how a film made in 79 or 84 would have looked they're mm-hmm. Uh, trying to play to, you know, oh, remember those films you grew up watching? Here's something like that. Whereas Thanksgiving is very content to be just a modern thing. A modern thing with really grotesque kills. Like, I I was kind of... For some reason, I guess I kind of thought that since this was, you know, um, a a slicker, more modern uh, slasher film, that maybe Eli Roth would pump the brakes just a little bit. Uh, But he doesn't. This is... <laughs> uh, if you like really, really bad things happening to human bodies, uh, when it would appear to be largely practical effects, uh, Thanksgiving is going to be a good time. Uh, I, uh, I, I enjoyed this movie a lot. <laughs> I saw this,
0: and uh, I did not enjoy it as much as you, but I, I think I liked it for everything but the kills. I thought the kills didn't really live up to what I was kind of hoping. Well, there, there are a few. There are a few that are pretty entertaining, uh, especially as the movie gets toward its end. But I, I kind of thought, like... Um, all of the, like the, the movies, uh, the movie opens with this big black Friday scene and like pretty quickly you realize, okay, they're setting up for this to be like a stampede where things go really, really wrong. And I thought all that was like incredibly well realized. And I just, I was thinking about it and I don't think a movie has captured that very well, even though, you know, it seems like every year on whatever social media platform platform of your choice, you probably have seen, viral clips of things like that happening in our culture for the past 10 years or something but I don't think a movie has ever really um yeah been able to capture that in a really really effective way and I think this does it and I think there's like this underlying like all the thematic stuff of thanksgiving i thought was surprisingly strong like the the actual um messages of the movie and like what it's trying to really say aside from just, you know, giving you a good time with a with a slasher and being a little bit of a mystery of like who the killer is and stuff like that. I thought like the actual, um, the heft of the movie was was more worthwhile to me than like the novelty of seeing Thanksgiving themed kills or whatever. Like the, there's some stuff in the trailer that you see where like somebody gets stabbed in the ears with uh corn cob holders or whatever and like some of that stuff is just like it's very goofy jacob like the the idea of uh of applying thanksgiving themed um kills to a slasher movie is like almost inherently goofy but uh so i didn't really think that stuff worked super well for me but i, I kind of liked everything else what did you think about the everything else of it all
1: yeah the, i think the movie is surprisingly on point in what it's about uh like i said it's, it's very modern i mean the fact that the, the opening act is essentially an extended Black Friday riot, um, that, that character's live stream, is um, very, uh, very entertaining because it's, it's, it's staged so brutally, but also definitely really embarrassing to be a human being in 2023 where this could be, you know, a thing that we watch and go, oh, yeah, this is this, this is something I recognize. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I do think that building an entire movie, a horror movie around that concept uh, is smart. Uh, but you brought this up, I want to get you a quick opinion on this. There are two kinds of slasher films you want to really break it down in the big halves. There's the, um, the Halloweens and the Nightmare on Elm Street where we know who the killer is and part of the fun is, you know, oh, that Freddy Krueger's at it again. And then there are the slasher films like The Screams and uh, the first Friday the 13th movie where it's a legitimate mystery. Is it who's killing them, Who's killing everybody off? And there's a big grand reveal and I found the, the mystery elements of this to actually be pretty fun. And I will say that I I was, my, my I think there was some, some well-utilized red herrings. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe I'm dumb, but I really enjoyed the reveal. I didn't see it coming as clearly as I think other people may have, but I had a great time with, with the actual mystery here. Yeah, I'm, I'm right in the same boat with you. Like normally for, you know,
0: sometimes these movies kind of like feel like they don't put a ton of effort into concealing who the, who the killer is, even though the movie itself doesn't reveal that until the third act or something. But this one I felt like, uh, and and so in, in those other movies, sometimes I'll find myself thinking ahead or trying to outsmart the movie or something. And this one, I was just kind of like uh, sitting there and mostly entertained all the way through. And so I wasn't trying to outsmart the movie or, or be one jump ahead and try to to figure it out. So I just kind of let it wash over me. And uh, I ended up being, yeah, like pleasantly surprised by what was happening. And I thought, uh, in retrospect there were some good um, seeds planted and stuff for for making it make sense and all of that so yeah I, I had a, a surprising amount of fun uh, with that part of it um I just wish the the kills like I don't know lived up to what some bizarre standard that that is in my mind I don't I don't know if like how would you compare the kills I, I know you're talking about the aesthetics of the the um, trailer uh ver- the fake trailer versus this movie before but like do you think the some of the kills are replicated exactly um or pretty close to exactly but do you prefer one or the other just in terms of like the slasher of it all not necessarily the look
1: see i don't want to spoil the kills that's part of the fun but i think they're just so much more outlandish in, in in this film compared to the more low-fi trailer by design mm. and i don't know the, to me i i the first main kill, which involved a dumpster, um, had me cackling, and that to me <laughs> the, the mildest kill in the movie. Um, so I don't know. I think you guys are going to agree, or disagree, because I found all the kills to be this really gnarly escalation from extreme to more extreme.
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm glad that you br- you brought up that dumpster kill because that's exactly the moment where I was just kind of like, "Oh, we're doing this." Like, ah, okay. Like, so you were you were laughing at that part, and I was just kind of like, "Oh." All right, so I think that's a good uh, delineation or, or uh, description of like how how we fall on the different side of the line there. But um, but yeah, I would say there's like a, a surprising amount of like decent stuff in this movie. And and certainly if you're looking for like a good uh, good time at a horror movie heading into the holiday season, like you certainly can't do worse than than this because I don't think there are any other horror movies out this holiday season right now still, uh, except for maybe Five Nights at Freddy's or something. But I would definitely recommend watching Thanksgiving over that. So uh yeah i think that's gonna do it any any closing thoughts on anything jacob that we you uh didn't get a chance to say
1: i mean of the four movies in theaters for thanksgiving the four main major new or newish releases uh thanksgiving hunger games and saltburn are all worth your time The only one i ease caution about is napoleon but even i'm not gonna gonna tell somebody to not see the new release scott you know go see it if you if you're a film fan so you can have your own opinion on it um yeah i think i think that it's a really really interesting diverse lineup of movies i really hope that at least some of them do well For sure. Okay, you can
0: find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and links inside the show notes for this episode. SlashFilm Daily is usually published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features at SlashFilm.com. Once again, no episode tomorrow or Friday. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks so much for listening and we will talk to you next week.